Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'll try to get this down here where you can hear me, and I won't need to shout, I hope. Is my coming through loud and clear? Good, okay. I want to be sure that's the case. Back in the old days, we often had halls that didn't even have a sound system, so we simply had to holler. And, you know, in the Bible, it says Jesus lifted up his voice. And I know some of the Hebrew scholars say the word is shout. So obviously in front of huge crowds and along the lake or the Sea of Galilee, there weren't any microphones. He simply had to lift up his voice and talk loud. But I want to do that if we have to because one of the worst things about a sermon is if you can't hear it. <laughs> I know that. So if some of you people are older, we really do need to try to hear everything. Well, welcome to guests that are here. And we appreciate the special sermonette we had and the special music. As Mr. Ames said, I'll be in Texas the next couple Sabbaths, and I'll be having the campaign a week from tomorrow there, one of these public lectures, and appreciate your prayers for that. Brethren, Passover is coming, and since I'm going to be not here the next two or three Sabbaths, I thought I would speak on a pre-Passover sermon because the sermons we give here don't even get played for six or seven weeks. It takes a while to edit them, to go over them, to get them ready to send them out. And so they often just get there a couple weeks before Passover. And I want to have you think about the coming Passover. Almighty God tells us, as you know, back in Second Corinthians, one of the key scriptures we use, but please turn there with me, if you would, to Second Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. He said in verse 5, For though, no, he said, Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? So we have to know that Christ is in us or we're not in the church. We're not converted at all. And he tells us here to examine ourselves. And certainly God tells us that about the Passover as well, that each one is to examine himself. It doesn't mean that Mr. League and Mr. Rob McNair and our other counseling ministers have to go around and interview everyone about it, but each one of you ought to take note and to think, am I really ready now for the kingdom of God? Have I really accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, my Lord and Master, my living head, and my high priest. We have to think about that. Is Christ your Lord? Remember Jesus said back in Luke 6:46, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And brethren, often we have people among our, in our midst, and some of us may have been like that in the past, and we should all try to be honest about it because we're not asking anyone to aim his, or rave his hand, but to think about are you really ready to meet God? As world events speed up, and I think you all know they are, with this latest Grammy Awards they had out there, and they had Queen Latifah marrying, performing a great big group marriage for all kinds of homosexuals and transgenderites and everyites you could think of. They have all these different names. It's horrible. It's just exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're rejoicing in the most abominable type of behavior that could be imagined. And yet they think it's just great. And the people in this world and our, our you know, society applaud and they think it's so wonderful. 
and they have perversions all through our society. And of course, they call it love. And they tell young couples it's just fine to love to, to just live together without marriage. Marriage has no meaning. God is not involved apparently in marriage and in binding together a man and a woman to build a family. It doesn't involve God. God is to keep his nose out of their business. That's the way they look at it. And they talk that way very openly. And of course the homosexuals, when they invaded St. Patrick's Cathedral back when, when the Catholic Church was condemning homosexuality, while the queers were yelling, keep your hand out of my crotch. They got nasty, worse things than that. They don't like God butting in their business and telling them anything. And on our major TV programs, it's getting more and more and more that way. And we have leading representatives and senators, even the President of the United States coming out and lending favor toward the homosexual community, toward same-sex marriage, men marrying men, and every foul thing the human mind could imagine. We are living near the end of an age. And right now, all kinds of riots and problems are erupting, and a horrible civil war is raging even now, with tens of thousands of people being killed all the time over in Syria. And, of course, the people in Kiev are rioting, and hundreds have already been killed there in the Ukraine. And people are upset and rioting in some of the back outback areas of China, and the Chinese government is having to hold the lid on that. And all across the world, there are those things taking place, and they're getting worse nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And, of course, the word nation means ethnos. or ethnic groups, different small wars breaking out, as Christ predicted, just before the end of the age. So think about it. Are we ready for the Passover? Are we really ready to be made members, full members of the family of God? Do we have that attitude? And my brethren, one of the key attitudes that we have to think about very, very profoundly is whether or not we have what God calls the fear of God. We've spoken on that before, but we need to again and again. God talks about it over and over because we're surrounded by a society that does not fear God. They're constantly making fun of religion, constantly putting down every aspect of the truth. And most of you know that. On these comedy shows, they'll have comments like Noah swallowing the whale. Well, of course, it wasn't a whale anyway. It was a special fish by created by the great God who made the heavens and the earth and the universe. Can that great God have the power to create a special fish? Of course he can. But it's not necessarily a whale. And it was not Noah. It was Jonah. So they twist it around and the people laugh and they think that's funny. Noah swallowing the whale. They have every way they can to make fun of the truth of God and the way of God. The attitude is there, as most of you know, that came in the Garden of Eden because Satan came and he began to appeal to Eve right away. Is God unfair? Why would God say you can eat these other things but he's not letting you eat this beautiful fruit tree? The idea was right there at the very beginning of humankind, God is not fair. His way is not the best way. Let's begin to reason around and reason around and come up with some other alternative. And so if you, once you start down that path, then you do not have the fear of God because the fear of God is proving yourself. And they didn't need to have someone explain that. They were there and saw God. But people today need to prove there is a God 
and that this book, the Bible, is inspired by God, and if they can want do willing to do that one thing, then they ought to have that awe of God that we all need to have to just be willing to do what God says and not reason around and reason around and get various excuses for watering down everything the Almighty God tells us. This self-willed attitude will rub off on us. It will rub off on our children, our young people in the church, and it already is because this self-willed attitude, I want what I want, and I don't need some God telling me what to do, then it begins to come, well, these men, they tell us this. Well, I'm a man, and Mr. Ames is a man, and Mr. League is a man. God is not speaking directly from the ceiling, but once you begin to prove there is a true church, and you have faith that Christ is the head of the church, he will allow some mistakes. But as Mr. Armstrong said many times, and it was true, he said, God will not ever let me make a terrible mistake to hurt people's eternal life or to destroy the work. And he didn't. He didn't. He doesn't do that. And God tells you, you ought to have respect for God. You ought to have respect for the ministry. You ought to have respect for others and not have this self-willed attitude that does away entirely with what describes as the fear of God. God does not want us to be in his kingdom and his family forever and have a kind of a self-willed attitude. Nobody better tell me what to do or butt into my business. That is the exact total opposite of the fear of God. And yet that attitude is being pumped and pumped and pumped into the minds of billions of human beings around the world now more than ever because of our media, of course, and the way they can control the thinking of an entire society. Turn now, if you would, to Mark, uh, the book of Mark chapter 12. I'm going to Mark chapter 12 at this point and get a little bit of this tea here. And beginning in verse 28, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, he'd been talking about the resurrection, and then one of the scribes came and heard them reasoning together and said, which is the first commandment of all? So here was one of the Jewish scholars trying to trip Jesus up, obviously. What's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments. And brethren, this is the one they usually leave out when you talk to people about their day. Well, we love our neighbor or we practice the golden rule which they don't, they don't even understand it, but they talk that way. But they very rarely mention the great commandment. The first commandment of all is, Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, This, and with all your strength. In other words, to love God with all those facets of your entire being. This is the first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other greater commandment than these so if you love God with all your being and you sincerely want to be like God you worship God you honor God and you know that he is perfect love perfect wisdom perfect beauty perfect intelligence perfect everything and if you love him with all your heart all your strength, all your mind, and all your soul, you begin to examine, as you love God that way, how great God is. How great God is. And brethren, we should meditate on that every now and then and do like David did. 
in Psalm 8. He looked up into the heavens and he said, why did you make us in your image? Why, are, why is man here? And so on. He began to realize that God had made the sun, the moon, the stars, the vast cosmos. How great is God? And when you look across the Rocky Mountains, if you're up at a very high place, I climbed Mount Whitney years ago, you begin to see a whole array of mountains out there and then the great clouds and other things up above that. You're all alone up there and the wind is blowing. You realize how small we are. We're a tiny speck. We're to consider our lives and take account of how many more years we may have left and realize that man is just a vapor. He appears for a little while and then he disappears. It's like a little wisp of smoke. And we have to understand that and realize that if there is a real God, the kind of God the Bible describes, we ought to have such a profound fear of that God, which does mean as of a monster, but a certain hearty fear, a healthy fear of doing wrong. I know I had a healthy fear of my father. I loved my father. I always did growing up, but I knew that if I brought his wrath, he could be very masculine, let me say. And he gave me some very hard spankings that showed me he was in charge. And yet when I got in trouble several different times, and I've told you some of those before, he came and rescued me many, many times. And when I was going down over these little rapids or falls or heading toward them in this stream one time, lost my footing in the swift current, and he told me, don't go out there. I was a little six- or seven-year-old boy. I danced out there, and sure enough, my feet got swept out from under me. Then Daddy came racing after me. He was such a good swimmer in college. He was a student swimming coach. He helped the coach coach the rest of the swimming team. He was like Tarzan. Boy, he came and grabbed me in that strong hand, pulled me out. I've never forgotten things like that that my father did. God is like that. But when he tells us something, we had better listen. He is our father. He's made us in his image. He is the great God. But he commands respect far, far greater than we ever gave our human fathers because he is the ultimate father. He is the creator. He is the governor of the heavens and the earth, the author of everything that is. So we need to understand that and have that kind of awe and to love God with every fiber of our being and in that way have the fear of God. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 111, brethren. Psalm, at this point, 111 in your Old Testament here. And here is King David telling us, this same thing, Psalm 111, and beginning in verse 10. Psalm 111. He says, I'm sorry, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fearing God, that tremendous awe of God, begins to give you a right basis for your decisions. If you make your decisions based upon that one great overwhelming fact that burns in your brain, God is there, his word is there, his law is there, what does God really want me to do? And that is the underlying thought behind everything you do. God is real, what does God want me to do? The awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. Then you turn back to Psalm 104. Now, why am I turning so much to the Psalms? Well, because they're inspired in a special way. And also the one who was a man after God's own heart wrote the Psalms. 
God loved this man's attitude. Whatever David did, he did with his, ter- his whole heart, and he made one terrible mistake. But he also powerfully repented of that, never ever did it again, which God describes. And God likes us to be wholehearted, and God wants a man that really fears him and has that attitude. And David certainly described that attitude beautifully. Psalm 104, Bless the eternal, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He was picturing God stretching out the heavens. He looked up. David was out all alone under the stars. Night after night as a young boy, he was no about in awe of that beautiful expanse of stars and the moon and the things he could see in the sky. God became very real to him out there all alone. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters who makes the clouds his chariots. Yes, David put picture the clouds being God's chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, who made all this, everything we see around us, who made the Rocky Mountains, who made Niagara Falls, who made the great mighty Mississippi River and all the other things around the world like that. God did the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God we can come to know by reading this book, by meditating on it, by praying, by walking with God and seeing how God does intervene and how he does back up this word and how God is real. He said, you covered it with the deep as a garment. The water stood above the mountains, talking about the flood, no doubt. Verse 7, at your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. Often in the Bible, this is just one of the many times God describes or David describes God's voice as the voice of thunder. When David heard rolling thunder, as we used to hear at Big Sandy, rolling across the plains and huge lightning and thunder showers and so on, just shaking the whole earth, David knew that in one way that was God speaking. God was doing that. That was his power, showed a little bit of his power. So he was all in awe of that and honored God in that way. As you turn to verse 17, he says here, he talks about the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are refuge for rock badgers. God has made all these interesting things all over the earth for his creation. He thought them out. He planned them. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make the darkness and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey. They seek their food from God. David thought God planned this. He organized this. He had to create all this overlapping, interlocking creation where one thing requires the other. He said in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions, this great and wide sea. Think of all the sea creatures you see when you go to a really major aquarium. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about, and there is that Leviathan, apparently great sea creatures that they didn't even know what it was. When they rendered that word, some of the commentaries show that, what you've made to play there. He says, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in season. God created all this creation. What you give them, they gather in. 
You open their hand and they are filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. If God turns away from the creation, the creation is troubled. And brethren, if we turn aside from God and we begin to go our way and God turns away his face from us, bad things are going to happen. We've seen that happening to our own nation in the last several years. We've seen that happening to the whole world. We've seen that happen to God's church when God's church began to turn away from God more and more during the 1970s. As Mr. Armstrong said, there were 35 years of 30% increase in the income, and I've talked to him about that, and he described it as from 1934 1934 to 1969, the income grew steadily. But within about two years after Mrs. Armstrong's death, the income started to go down, and there was trouble. We had some people there that ought not to have been there, and Mr. Armstrong began to travel away from the campus with his other man and, and travel and didn't know what was going on, and things got worse and worse until, as our chief accountant, Fred Dadalow, said, who came with us for a while, there were three negative years. What was happening during the negative years of income and the work of God? Well, I don't want to wear you out. I know the guys who have lunch, <laughs> they, they know I could tell all these bad stories. We had human nature in Pasadena, and it was not good. Mr. Armstrong was mainly gone, and some of them earned under him began to water things down. One young man said, who was temporarily in charge, he said, well, he said, let's loosen things up around here. And all the young people figured that out, and they began to do really bad things. But what also happened, we had more broken marriages. We had more broken homes. We had more wife beatings. We had more drunkenness. We had more adultery. We had more of the lack of income, a lack of zeal in the church as a whole. It was very obvious to those of us who were older because we had begun to turn away from God, and God began to turn away from us. So we have to understand that. It isn't just the animals. You hide your face, and they're troubled. You take away their breath, and they die, and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, and they are created. You renew the face of the earth. God brings the rain. God brings the snow. He gives the moisture. He does other things to renew the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. When God looks down a certain way, he shakes the earth at earthquakes. He touches the hills and they smoke. David then cried out, who loved God with all of his being, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the eternal. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the eternal, O my soul. Hallelujah. Yes, we should have that attitude and realize God is in charge of everything. He made all the animals. He made the sun, moon, and stars. His knowledge is perfect. His understanding is infinite. And he is God. And we must have a profound awe, a deep, profound respect, which God describes as the fear of God where, yes, we physically, mentally, psychologically fear, not as a monster involved, but someone that is real, someone that has total power over our lives. I saw my wife lying there, and it hurt me so much. 
the vibrant personality was gone. They're not there. We're all going to be like that in a few years, brethren, unless Christ comes first for some of you. And the only way it's going to change is for you to give your life to God and more than many of you are doing. And the only way it's going to change is for you to have the fear of God more than many of you have. And I'm not talking just you, brethren, here. I mean you too, of course. But you, brethren, around the world. We are becoming lackadaisical. We're not as constrictive. We're not as zealous as we ought to be. As we get bigger, we're grateful for that. But let's not water things down. Let's not turn away from God as happened in worldwide. It, one of the things that hurt me the most in all my entire life were my wife's death and that certain things happened in the work and that many of my own former students and employees that I worked with, I taught, turned totally away from God. I thought I lectured them, I taught them. How can they do that? But they did do that. It's as though God never existed in their minds before. I used to think that Brickett Wood was Mr. Armstrong's college. We used to call Pasadena kind of the main college, and Big Sandy was Ted's college. He kind of liked the outdoors, country-western atmosphere, which is okay. Brickett Wood was more sculptured and more formal. That was regarded as Mr. Armstrong's favorite college. He spent so much time there. What happened when Brickett Wood closed? What happened when the paycheck was not there anymore? Well, the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, the college physician, the college lawyer, the college this, they all quit. Did they quit their job? No, the job stopped. But the minute the job stopped, most of them quit the church of God. Think about that. If you don't get a check from the work, when the Sabbath goes, starts beginning, the sun goes down Friday evening, has God suddenly done away with the Sabbath day? Is your Sabbath obedience based upon your paycheck? Are you a more profound Christian than that? Do you have the fear of God? The awe of the creator of the heavens and the earth? Will you allow yourself to reason around and get away from all the things you've proved? Or have you proved those things? Some of you probably haven't really proved those things in the first place. Be sure you have for your good. Be sure you have, brethren, we really need to be sure of this and never, ever turn aside. Yes, we should praise God with all of our being as David did because he is great. He's made everything that is. Turn back at this point, if you would, to Psalm 38. I'm going back to chapter 38 now of the book of Psalms. Notice here, O eternal, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, David wrote. For your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor is there any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Now he's not talking about some of our older brethren in the late 60s and 70s dying. That's very normal. It's not fun. But as I've said, barely, nearly all human beings die between age 65 and 85, or certainly between 60 and 90. But David was not that old when he wrote this. He was beginning to have trouble because he had begun to water down things in his life. And he had festering in his body. He'd been probably involved in some foolish battles and got gangrene. He loved to fight too much. That's why God did not allow him to build the temple. 
But whatever it was, his wounds were foul and festering because of my foolishness, he wrote. I am troubled, bowed down greatly. I my, oh, go mourning all along. For my loins are full of inflammations, no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Eternal all my desires before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As the light of my eyes, they are gone from me. Yes, God began to humble David. Does God sometimes allow sickness to humble you? You need to think of it. When I begin to get things bad happening more than just a normal cold, I look around at least and begin to think, why did this happen? God may not have always directly done it, but he certainly allowed it. Why did he allow it? Did God want me to learn a reason for that? I want to learn it. I want to have the fear of God. David did. That's why he wrote these things. He had the awe of God. God David knew that God was totally involved totally involved in every part of his life. In him we live and move and have our being. And as Jesus Christ said, every hair of our head is numbered. If God knows every hair of our head, he certainly knows when some of us get sick all the time because we've been abusing our bodies. We've been eating wrong things. We haven't been getting enough exercise. We've been eating processed foods, fast foods, polluted foods. And maybe we've had wrong emotions of hate and resentment and bitterness. It's not always what you're eating. It's what's eating you. These things bring on sickness, physical sickness, and occasionally mental and emotional sickness as well. Think about it. Have the fear of God. God is involved in every aspect of your life, and especially, brethren, if you are his child, if you are a converted member of the church, He not only knows every hair of your head, he knows every thought that you're thinking, every resentment you have about something, and God does keep score. He has to. God does want me and you to be in his everlasting kingdom as glorified spirit beings and know he's got someone there that's constantly chewing the rag as we say, well, I don't know, and I dislike this minister, and I'm going to evaluate this minister, and I don't like this family over here, I'm going to pick on these people over there. No, God does not want us to be that way. He hates that kind of attitude. and The Bible shows that over and over again. So get over it. Get rid of that kind of attitude of jealousy and vanity and lust and greed and competing and fighting and resenting God and God's way and God's people. You've got to if you want to be in God's kingdom. And when these things come on you, know there may be a reason for it. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you would. 1 Samuel now and chapter 15, a very familiar passage here, I hope. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read the story, as you know, how God commanded Samuel to tell Saul to go punish the Amalekites. And he said in verse 3, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy. Notice that. You don't just attack them on the fringe. God went all out. God does not have hate, but these people must have been terribly perverted in the way they were constantly fighting among themselves, fighting Israel, stabbing people in the back. They probably had vile sex practices, vile religious practices they were teaching their own children. God said, wipe them out. 
And when you don't understand the great white throne judgment, especially, that seems cruel. But when you really understand the great white throne judgment, God will say, say activate file 13, and they'll come up again. God will say, now, these, these are some lessons you folks had better learn very quickly the next second as far as they're concerned. It doesn't seem near as bad when that becomes real to you. Go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man, woman, infant, nursing child, ox, and sheep, and donkey. All of it. God commanded every bit of it to be done. So Saul gathered the people together and attacked Amalek. But he said in verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag. Why? They tried to water down what God said. They said, well, God says we're to love each other, so what's wrong with me loving another man? Something wrong with that? No, I love Mr. League, and I love Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnell, but I love them the way God tells me to love them. I don't love them physically like I love my wife. That's an abomination. You do things the way God tells you to. You don't reason around and try to water it down and pervert what God tells you to. So they've despaired the, the king and the best of the sheep and oxen. And then the word came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. And so Saul then came to Samuel. And then Samuel said in verse 17, he said, Saul, who is a great, huge, tall man, as you know, bigger than all the other people when he was made king, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the eternal anoint you king over Israel? Now the eternal sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they're consumed. Why then did you not obey? Why, brethren, do we not obey God? Why do some of us not come to church? We come up with all kinds of excuses just to skip church if we have a little cold or we have a little this or a little that. We don't feel good. Well, man, if I'd stayed away from church all those times, I would have skipped hundreds of times, I suppose, because I've always tended to have a sinus problem and used to have one worse out there in the California smog than I do now. But I didn't stay home all the time because of things like that. I, I wouldn't have been around. I'd never been a leader if I did. If I didn't feel good, I'd stay home from college or not do my work or whatever, find various excuses. You can find an excuse, well, we, we didn't feel good or something went wrong or whatever. You don't stay away from church for everything you can think of. You don't quit paying your tithe to God because you think, well, I can't get this new TV set or we're going to have to not get the new shoes as quick as we want or something else. No, you pay your tithe. Brethren, get this. You don't give God his tithe. You pay God his tithe. It's his money. It is not your money. And as you all know, you turn back to Malachi 3. He said, will a man rob God? Rob God? That's the way he puts it. Yet people here in the church are robbing God. They are not paying their tithe at all. It's very obvious in some cases. Why would you rob God? Why would you, brethren, out in the field across the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, Britain? Why would you rob God? Because you're not thinking straight. Because you don't have the tremendous awe of God and you have not proved that God really inspired this book and that the great God who gives you the breath you're breathing in and breathing out right now, that that breath comes from God. It really does come from Him. 
and he could take it away. And sometime you're going to suddenly end your life and you'll lie there on that hospital bed and you'll be gone. And your loved ones will cry and they'll hate it. But you're gone. They'll never see you again in this life. You're finished. That's it. We're like a vapor. We hear, we appear for a little while and then we're gone. And we have to honor God because He is the only one. No one else is going to save you. Only the God that inspired this book will give you eternal life. And if you don't have the deep, profound awe of that God, then you will not have eternal life. It's just that simple. So why did you think water things down? Why did you swoop down on the prey, Saul asked, or Samuel asked Saul? And, and then he tried to reason with him. And Saul then answered, But the people took the plunder, verse 21, and the things which had been destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He had that excuse. Well, we were going to offer it to God, so that makes it okay. No, it does not make it okay. It does not make it okay. It doesn't mean you can't change what God said. Then Samuel said, Has the ever-living one as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, even if you were going to do that, and he knew they probably weren't, as in obeying the voice of the Lord and doing it just like God said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's pretty strong. But that's what God said. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. You have rejected God. Saul lost his kingship because of what? Because then what Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed, verse 24, your words. Why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Does that tell you something? God says, fear me. Saul said, I didn't fear you. I feared the people. Do you want to fear a lack of respect for people around you or that you won't have as much money or you won't have this or that or something else or do you fear God more? So you have to get your priorities straight and realize what the fear of God involves. It involves putting your ultimate trust in God and being willing no matter what to do what God said. You and I, brethren, are all training to be kings and priests. You know that. He's working with us. He's trying to teach us lessons for all eternity if we're willing to learn. He's trying to fashion and mold us to be like he is. Are we going to be a king or a priest in God's kingdom if we fear men, if we fear physical circumstances, and we do not have the fear, that awe of the great God who created the sun, moon, and stars, who created us in his image, who is the one who ultimately gives us the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, He's the one we should fear. He's the one we should hold in total awe, that great God. But Saul did not do that. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Therefore, he lost his kingship. Do you want to lose your kingship? I hope, I hope you all know better than that. You have a tremendous opportunity ahead. But the fear of God can help you gain that wonderful blessing and that magnificent reward if you'll simply learn to walk with God and make God the very center of your being. And I hope all of you will. We've got to think about that and examine ourselves. Examine ourselves as we approach the Passover. 
Now let's go to now to one of the other great greatest men in all of human history. No, it's not one of the Beatles. <laughs> it's not one of the rock stars. You read about this man back here in Genesis 22. This man, as you know, became the father of the faithful. He is even put ahead of King David, ahead of Moses. In verse 21, or verse 1 of chapter 22 of Genesis, Genesis 22, verse 1, it came to pass that God tested. So God tests every one of us. He has tested me a number of times through circumstances where it was very difficult and seemed bad at the time, but it turned out good. He tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, his only legitimate son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Wow! Abraham had been used to slitting animals' throats and seeing the blood gush out. He'd been used to cutting up the wood or having putting an animal up there. He could picture this better than you and I do. It probably hit him more. And there was a deep, profound closeness in his family. When you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he did have a profound love. Many fathers and mothers do not love their children near as much as Abraham loved Isaac. So did, did Abraham argue, well, God, you know, I could get the best lamb over here I've ever had and do that instead or whatever excuse? No. Abraham rose early. He didn't put it off. He said, I will obey God and I will obey him now. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men and headed out to the place that God had said. And of course, he took the wood and the fire. And Isaac said, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham said, verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. But he didn't know at that time. The Bible indicates that. He simply trusted that God would work it out some way. And they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar, placed the wood in order. Here's Abraham with his young teenage son. Must have been a teenage son. Everything indicates that because he was carrying the wood. He, put, he didn't put this wood on a little six-year-old boy. a great big bunch of wood to make this altar. His son, the, the, some of the Jewish commentators think he was at least 14. Some of them think he was at least 20 years of age. We don't know. But he built an altar, placed the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, which tells you something about Isaac. It doesn't say Abraham sneaked up behind Isaac and hit him and then tied him up. He must have said, turn around, son, and he began to tie him up, and Isaac somehow just let Abraham do it. He was not a little baby. He had profound respect. Isaac was a type of Christ, and Abraham was a type of God the Father. He tied him up and laid him on the altar, up on the wood, and he stretched out his hand, and just as I would stretch out my hand as though I had a knife ready, or I think it was more like this, I think he had Isaac laid face down, and he would probably went like this to slit his throat real quick so that the gravity would pull the blood out quickly and that Isaac would die without as much pain. There wasn't any indication they stabbed the animal. They simply slit its throat. He was ready to whip his wrist. And he knew how to do that. He'd grown up in that kind of society. It might have been within three to six seconds he'd have gone like that and Isaac would be gone and suddenly this voice came. Probably the best sound Abraham ever heard. Out of, the, out of the woods here somewhere nearby. An angel said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything, for now I know. Think about that, brethren. Does God know that about you? Does he know that about me? Now I know that you fear God. He wants to know that we do have a profound awe of God. We won't water things down. We won't argue. We won't try to twist things around. We won't try to put down his ministers who represent him. We won't try to get a whisper campaign to to bring down the respect for God's church and God's work of which Christ is the living head. We know Christ is the living head. Why would we do that? I know you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a ram. God obviously caused a ram to supernaturally get caught over here by his horns. You didn't find that happening very often, but it happened right there because God was involved. And Abraham called the name of the place the Eternal will provide, or Yahweh Ira. And he said, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then an angel of the Lord, the angel, called to Abraham the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal. Now, brethren, that word angel means messenger. And when you read the whole account, in this case, the messenger was the one who later became Jesus Christ. Of course, Christ was that rock, that rock of the Old Testament. That rock was Christ. For those of you who are new, look it up now if you want to. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The rock that went before Abraham, the rock that went before Moses, the rock, that great being, that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Many other scriptures show that. This was Christ speaking. By myself I've sworn, says the ever-living one. Here was the word Yahweh, meaning the one with life inherent within himself. Because you have done this thing and with not withheld your son. In blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants to the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemy. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You have done what I said and not tried to water it down or postpone it or get out of it. And because he said back here, of course, in this key verse, verse 12, now I know that you fear God. The deep awe, the profound respect that Abraham had for that personality who walked with him and talked with him and who was with a lot, he knew that was God and he did not try to get around it one way or the other. So God has given him the opportunity to be the father of the faithful, as far as we know, for all eternity. I know that you fear God. So that's a big lesson for us. Where do you and I stand? What excuses can we offer when we try to change things around, when we try to water things down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, brethren, turn with me to your New Testament now, and I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians at this point, chapter 6. It says here in verse 18, talking about not going into harlotry or sexual sin, it says, flee fornication in the King James Version. Or the New King James says, flee sexual immorality. The Greek word is fornication. Flee fornication. 
Every sin that a man does outside his body is outside, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. In other words, you're not stealing something over here or killing someone. You're actually using your body as a special instrument for your mind, your heart, your emotions are involved in a special way if you misuse the gift of sex. You're misusing that. You're, you're perverting the temple of the Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Verse 20, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Don't use your body in fornication or adultery or any kind of sexual perversion. Glorify God in your body and in your uh, spirit, your attitude, the way you think, the way you talk, which are God's. You are not your own. I've told you the story before how Dr. Herman Hay, when I first came to college, we went down to Tijuana and then on to Ensenada, Mexico. We went more or less through Tijuana. It was already for somewhat wild, but we went all the way to Ensenada, a little further south from, from Los Angeles. And Herman Hay and another, in fact, the, three, the only three men who were the pioneer students were there with me, Herman Hay and Raymond Cole and, and, uh, and I. Uh, no, Dick Armstrong was the other one. Betty Bates wasn't, of course. She was the only girl. <laughs> but we went down together, and we had a nice time in the evening. We, they had this nice uh, place we stayed in, a fairly nice place because the American dollar went a lot further then, and we were able to stay with even our college wages in a reasonable place, and they had this day and dinner with some dancing, and... Mexican girls dancing, and it was nasty in those days. They just had their whirling skirts, but nothing wicked. The music was pretty and lively. But the next morning at breakfast, Herman Hay wasn't there, and he always got up earlier than any of us. Usually he'd grown up on a farm. Where is Herman? Finally, Herman comes running back, and we were halfway through breakfast. And Herman, where have you been? He said, I was out on a walk in the early morning already, but these young people approached me, and they were trying to sell me their sister. Of course, I've had that happen. Some of you men have two in those places. And they probably use the nasty name for it. And you want to so-and-so my sister. And Herman had been very sheltered, frankly, in the way he grew up. I won't tell you all about it, but he'd not been around as much as I had and not been as wicked. Wow! These prostitutes were coming right in. And what did he do? He ran. He said, the, he, said, he said, the Bible says flee fornication. So here was Herman running, running through the streets. But I appreciated that. He didn't mess around. He literally fled. He ran away from fornication. God willing, all of our living university students and God willing, all of our ambassador students would have done that. Most of them did, but some of them didn't. Flee fornication. Don't mess with it. Don't try to get your girlfriend a dark alley or the back seat of a car or some apartment where girls are and there are no others there or that kind of thing. Don't lend yourself to that kind of thing. Don't get as close to the edge of the cliff and hope you won't fall off. Don't do that. Get as far away from the edge of the cliff sexually and in every other way. Don't mess with it. Flee fornication. Why? Again, it goes right back to the key word, fear. It's a healthy fear. It's not an unhealthy fear because you know that God is real, that God is omnipotent, that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows where you are. 
He knows what you're about to do. So you say, wow, i got to get out of here. I'm not going to be around this place and I'm not going to get into fornication. I'm not going to get into drunkenness. I'm going to get into thievery. I'm not going to join these young people taking drugs. I'm out of it. That's it. Flee. Get away. And all of us are older. Break that habit. Conquer it with all of your being. Flee it. No matter what it is, a habit, a member of the family who hurts you, get away. Don't let that drag you out of God's kingdom. If you have a kind of a job where that job literally causes you to sin, you have to trust God. I know that to get a better job. But give up that job. Give up whatever it is that stands between you and the kingdom of God. Throw it out. Get rid of it. Flee it. Take action. Because of what? Because you fear God. And God wants to know. Now I know that you fear God because you have been willing to do anything to get in my kingdom, to honor me, to put me above everything else. So we've got to build that attitude into our lives, brethren, with all our hearts. Fear to do evil. Back in James, the third chapter, notice this, if you would. James chapter 3. God tells us here in James 3, beginning in verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That's scary to me. I've been one of the longest time teachers in the work. I know that. So I better not mess around too much. (laughs) I know that. The ministers will receive a stricter judgment. We cannot afford involves in fornication or stealing or lying or anything else. For all we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Nearly everyone makes mistakes, but that doesn't mean we'd better let it come easily. We'd better try to conquer it with every fiber of our being. We've got to be able to bridle our tongue. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at the ships. They're driven by a very small rudder. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles, this little piece of flesh between your teeth. You start putting people down. You pit one friend against another. You lie. You lie. And pretty soon it gets around to your circle of friends. If they're perceptive, they can't fully trust what you say. And once that happens and you can't really fully trust what someone is saying, then they say, I'm sorry. But you don't know they're sorry. You see what I mean? They've lied. They may have to prove for months or years to certain people that they have quit that lying. Lying is a terrible thing. We don't take it as serious as we should. What if God were a liar? Now you think about that. God says that you pray and study and fast and cry out to God and conquer your nature and overcome, I'll give you eternal life. And you get to the end of the road, then God says, ha-ha, it's all a big joke. Wow. What if God were a liar? Does God want us to have that kind of an attitude, that kind of cheapening of the very thing we stand for? We'd better not. Lying is terrible. You must be sure that you use your tongue rightly. The tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. Yes, a fire, like the lake of fire. It burns things up. 
the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defires, defiles the, court, the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Eventually, the tongue and your whole body will be burned up in the lake of fire unless you control this little member. And we've all got to realize how serious that is because he's certainly talking about that very type of thing. In Revelation chapter 21, brethren, turn back to Revelation chapter 21 now, if you would, and here is a thing, wonderful scripture about the nature of God, God's mind. Revelation 21 verse 7, he who overcomes, do you overcome yourself? Do you overcome the world? Do you overcome Satan the devil? He shall inherit all things. As we've explained, that means the whole universe, everything that is. But God can't give you that kind of power unless he knows and knows that he knows that you fear him, that you're not going to take that power and suddenly go do something bad. You're not going to lie. You're not going to use it against him. You're not going to try to divide his kingdom. He's had enough of that with Satan the devil. That's it. You're not going to be there if you do those things. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, verse 8, the cowardly, many people are cowardly. They're afraid to commit to God. They're afraid to get away from the world. They want to please men rather than God. The cowardly, they can't put their trust in God. They're afraid it might not work. some point, brethren, you've got to know it's going to work. You've got to know that God is there. When my wife was dying recently, one of my deep regrets is that I did not comfort her and show her that I, and say, honey, you may be dying and I love you and tell her all. I, I've told her that hundreds of times in the last months and all of our marriage, but I didn't do that in a special way because I was trying to focus my mind on the fact that God would heal her and therefore I didn't say, well, you know, I know you're going to die. And at one point she says, Rod, I'm dying. And looking back, I think I could have, should have just bent over and hugged her and said, I'm afraid that's the case. God can still heal you, but just told her other good things. But I didn't give her of my emotional support as much as I should have done at that time because I was hoping that I would not wimp out, so to speak, on trusting God. It's a kind of a fine line there. I wanted God to know that I still believed that he could heal at the last minute because God can heal at the last minute. And I know that and know that I know that and I've seen that in the case of Mrs. Beam and the case of others that I've dealt with. You've heard me tell about this woman who had breast cancer there and, you know, the doctors actually had taken off one breast before she came in the church. She was with her husband, but then she started attending as a member and put her trust in God. Then it came back into the other breast, and the doctors were going to cut that off, but she was trusting God and had horrifying pain and begged the minister, please ask God to heal me right now or let me die. And the women who were taking care of her were all around, and they were praying, and they were crying. And it was a very moving scene, a number of them told me, because some were literally crying, and she was shaking, crying, and clawing the walls. God healed me or let me die. I can't take this. And so the minister prayed for her, 
with all his being, he said, more than he'd ever done before because of that emotion, that situation. I said, did God heal her right then? He said, no, it was kind of awful. He said, it was about one minute. But he said, when you're thinking 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 times 12, you know, 5 times 12 makes a minute. He said, it seemed like a long time. But right at the very end, when she was just about to die and her whole body was coming apart, she relaxed, they said, and she kind of, her hands opened up, her eyes opened up, she quit crying and shaking. She said, it's gone. It's gone. And the days and weeks afterward, her body sloughed off dead tissue. She was healed by the great God who gives us life and breath right away at the last minute. Just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, it was, quote, too late, end quote. They were already in the fire. They must have thought, okay, that's it. I'm sure they did. I don't think they thought it was gonna, God was going to let them get there and then get them out. Why would they think anything else? They knew we're going to obey God or else. That's what they were thinking. They thought the, the or else was taking place. They got in the fire, and then they looked around. They thought, what's going on? Then they saw this other being there, remember? When the king looked in, he said, I see a fourth man in there. We know who that was. That was the Yahweh. That was Jesus Christ. And he protected them at the last minute. I was hoping that would be Cheryl. God chose not to do that. And he has chosen not to heal so many people if they're in their other 60s or 70s or 80s. And sometime it may undoubtedly come my time. And I don't want any of you to fall away or say, well, God didn't keep his promise. God has not promised me to live until I'm 90 or 100 or 500. He hasn't promised any of you that either, so don't ever think that. He has told us that we will have about 70 years. He didn't use the term about, but his entire word shows that. Some died before 70, some died at 70, and some died beyond 70. King David died exactly 70 years of old, full of days, it says. So if you lived within two or three years of 70, which Cheryl did, and which many of our older ladies here have done, it's not like God has failed. He has not failed. He will keep his word. They will be resurrected or they will be healed, I should say, when the time comes. We know that, but not in this life. And God did not say it all has to be in this life, but most of the time it is. Most of the time it is in this life. So we've got to know and know that we know that. The cowardly, the unbelieving. Brethren, think about this. If you're going to have the fear of God, you've got to work on that. You and me as a church need to build an atmosphere of faith in this church to know and know that we know that that God is there, that he has always kept his word. He will always keep his word. He will not lie. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But he may not let all of us keep on living until we're 80 or 90 or 100 years old. And we should understand that. Take that, you know, when, what was it, Jacob was about to die. Why, he was getting old in his time. He called his sons together. He said, well, son, I'm to be gathered to my people. And George, you take care of this. Or you'd say, George, you said, you know, name their names. Joseph, you do this. And Judah, you do that. And Reuben, this is going to happen to you. He kind of gave them all their marching orders. Okay, boys, go to it. I'm out of here. Then it said he gathered his feet up into his bed and died. He may have been dying right at that moment. Apparently he died a few minutes or a few hours later. 
He was all man. He says, it's my time to go, and he went. So don't give up on God. Unbelieving, abominable, terrible, rotten, foul attitude, murderers having hate in your heart, sexually immoral, where you allow and participate or even in your mind condone homosexuality that says there in Romans chapter 1, not only those that do these things, that those agree with them. In other words, if you agree with them and back up these people that do these things, God says you are guilty. Romans chapter 1. Idolaters, and we have all kinds of idolatry we get into. We want more money. We want more TV sets. We want bigger cars, whatever it is. They all liars. God hates lying. Try with all your heart to think, am I twisting things? Am I greatly exaggerating where it becomes a lie? Don't do that. Fear to lie. Fear to twist the truth. It involves eternity. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Yes, there is a lake of fire. Not wrong to mention that. Christ mentioned it quite a number of times. I had some scriptures in here, but I thought I'd better not read all those. I don't want to frighten you too much. We're not preaching a fair religion, but he talks about the lake of fire. Christ does quite a number of times, but he mentions it here. The lake which burns in fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So brethren, learn to fear God and get completely away from sin. Flee fornication and get totally away from these wrong attitudes and this whole attitude of watering things down of turning away from God and not taking God and his commandments seriously so that God can say, I know that you fear God. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll break into the story here in verse 11. God says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, Yes, remember it says earlier, God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He does let us get sick sometime to wake us up. That doesn't mean every little sniffle you ever get from eating an extra ice cream is a great punishment from God, although he allows it, but he will intervene. And sometimes he'll bring a very serious sickness, and you better think, is this from God? What have I done? No chastening seems to be joyful, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Yes, we're trained by God spanking us, by God rebuking, chastening us, and working with us. Therefore, strengthen the hands which kneel down on the feeble knees and make straight paths so that, what the lame, that the lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace. Try to have peace. Don't stir up trouble. And, and holiness without which no one will see God looking diligently. Here's something where you need to fear God and be very exercised by it. Looking diligently lest anyone fall short of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness. Some people say, well, this minister did me wrong or this man in the church did me wrong. Well, they may be wrong themselves, but what if the minister made a mistake? I've made hundreds of mistakes. Mr. Armstrong said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of us. Do you get bitter about it? No. You know that every human being is just that. He is a human being. Forgive one another. Love one another. Help one another. 
So get rid of any root of bitterness, bringing up trouble, and therefore defile. Many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who just took his blessing for granted and did not have the fear of God and the profound appreciation he ought to have had. So he sold his birthright for a pot of pottage, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He cried out to God, but it was, in one sense, too late when he finally found in his carnal repentance he should have that. For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched. You're not coming to Mount Sinai that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying. Here was Moses. You know how things Moses went through. He was all man, but even he was terrified to the shaking of that mountain and that voice coming like thunder right down from God. Terrifying. I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, he said. But you, and that means you and me, brethren, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Our names are in heaven if we learn to walk with God. To God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not refuse him who speaks, uh, they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, it says. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. God has given us this revelation, whose voice then shook the earth. God is going to shake the earth again, brethren. People are going to have to be terrified to wake them up. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, I say, once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as the things that are made and the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we're going to be in God's kingdom and family forever and ever and ever. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence. And then what? With reverence and godly fear. We have girt to serve God, our God, our Father, the Creator who gives us life and breath with a deep sense of awe and reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He is all-powerful. In Him we live and move and have our being. We've got to really understand that. We've got to believe that with all our heart and all our strength and all our mind or we will not be there. We've got to love God that way. And we've got to serve him, the creator, with reverence and godly fear. Brethren, Jesus Christ died to pay for my sins and your sins. And as we come to the Passover in a few weeks and take that red wine symbolizing his red blood, let's understand that the great God loved us so much that he came down in, in person one of the two members of the God family and let that blood become poured out to be the ultimate Passover lamb to show he loves us. He appreciates us. He values us. He wants us in his kingdom. 
He wants us in his family forever and ever and ever. He wants us to make it. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we take that bread. We know that Christ was apparently tied over some kind of a post. In some movies they describe it as a, a wooden or a, a rock pile, whatever, and beaten and beaten till the flesh was literally ripped off of him and it looked almost inhuman. And by his stripes we were healed. So we take that red wine and we take that bread symbolizing Christ's broken body with a deep sense of awe of the fear of God that shows that God loves us, that God wants us to be like he is. He wants to call us my sons and my daughters. He wants us to bear his name forever. He knows that he gives us his Holy Spirit, then we will be like him. He helps us study. He helps us pray. He helps us overcome. He helps us say no to evil and grow so we can be in his kingdom and in his family and bear his name. So as we approach the Passover, let's honor God. But underneath all of it, have the right awe, have that profound reverence as you take the Passover and as you live your life between now and then and from then on forever, have the fear of God, the awe of God, the tremendous love to where you know that every beautiful snowflake, every beautiful mountain, every valley, every beautiful little child, every beautiful piece of music, every beautiful thing that human beings do for each other, all of it came from God. He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. And you worship God. You adore God. You want to be with Him. You want to be with Him. You want to be like Him forever. So you're willing to do that, to have the kind of reverence that he wants so you could be in his kingdom and be in his family, his very family forever.